and welcome to the worship services of Alamo First Baptist Church. I'm Brother Chris Rigby. I'm standing here this morning in front of our bell. This is the original bell that was at our old location uh, years ago. It uh, was there when the church was first built and it was always a call to worship. Well, when we moved to our new campus here several years ago, we brought it with us. And not too long ago, we got to put it up. We're so excited about it because it reminds us that we're coming together into this building to worship. And we are excited that today you've decided to tune in to our broadcast to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you will see the great love that Jesus has for you and the great love that we have for you as well this morning as we worship together. We look forward to meeting you and your family and we invite you to be a part of any of our worship services, our activities or ministries here. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is just drop us a line at our email address, alamofirstbaptist at gmail.com. All of it spelled out, just gmail.com, alamofirstbaptist. We look forward this morning to worshiping with you. We pray God's blessings upon you and your family as we go inside now and we worship together. Let's go ring that bell for Jesus. Yeah. 
It says I'm on. There I am. All right. It is good to be with you this morning, this June 14th, Sunday morning. We've got a couple of announcements that we want to be sure that you know all about. We are going to reopen on uh, next Sunday, June the 21st, which is Father's Day. Uh, we're going to be uh, doing worship only. We're going to start promptly at 10 a.m. The door is going to be open about 9.30. We have the, the seats uh, spread out. We're going to have a couple of areas within the church uh, for overflow. There will be uh, the live television uh, where you can see it and be a part if uh, we can't get everyone quite into the uh, worship uh, center. But uh, we think that we can. We, we're really hoping to. But uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper next week as well. So if, uh, if you're not going to be here, you're in one of our high-risk groups, the senior adult, underlying medical condition, and, and you're not going to be here and you want to take part of the Lord's Supper, and you don't have uh, any of the Lord's Supper stuff, we'll send it to you, we'll get it to you. Just call us, let us know. We'll send you what we're going to be using. We're going to have some self uh, uh, pre-wrapped uh, Lord's Supper uh, juice and crackers. Now you can use uh, Welch's grape juice and, and crackers at home if you want to do that uh, just fine as well. But uh, we have plenty. And when you come in next Sunday, those that are going to be here, we'll be getting uh, that to you uh, as you come in. Things will be a little bit different as we try to do some compliance stuff uh, to keep everybody in a social distance way. Uh, there will be a tithe box that will be out front. The deacons will have plates at the end of the service that you can give to. So there will be a few things that uh, are a little bit uh, different than normal. The deacons are going to be meeting following this worship service again. So guys, uh, you'll be here uh, just as soon as the service is over today. And they're going to be talking about uh, the plan going forward, particularly for our small groups. And as soon as they make a decision, we'll let you know. Youth. We have a fellowship plan for you at the Goldsby's. Uh, there's going to be a pool party on uh, June the 24th from 6.30 to 5.30. Uh, you need to bring a two-liter drink. And uh, if you have any questions about that, just see Brother Brian. Well, it is good to be with you this morning and uh, excited about this time of worship that we have. Uh, this morning we do want to uh, have a time of special prayer and lift up uh, Al and Rita Overton. Al had a heart attack yesterday uh, and he is in a critical intensive care unit at Jackson General uh, and is, uh, is guarded condition for sure. Uh, we want to be praying for Al for his recovery and for Rita and their family as they go through this time together. So let's open up with a word of prayer as we go to worship and also remember the Overtons. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and grace and for your goodness and all that you give to us. We thank you, Father, for uh, not just this Sunday, but we're looking forward to the Sundays to come. Next week, Lord, we're going to finally be back together again uh, in corporate worship. We know that we won't be completely whole yet, Father. There's still some who are in a high-risk uh, category. They uh, have an underlying condition or perhaps, Lord, one of our senior adults that just uh, it's still not quite safe for them to get out uh, and social mix with folks. And so, uh, but Lord, we are excited about at least this first step being back together again. And Lord, we pray for uh, your glory, your honor, and uh, the good uh, of the body of Christ as we come together next week to do that. 
We pray, Lord, this morning, not only for the worship service and just the, the things that are on our heart today, we also lift up this morning Al and Rita. We know Al is in serious condition, and Lord, we just pray for him and just ask, oh God, uh, for healing and a touch upon his life. We love him, and uh, Lord, we just uh, love Rita, and we want them to know uh, not only your presence and your strength during this time, but also that, that God, um, we are there for them, and if there's anything we can do, God, use us to help in whatever way it might be. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for being our Lord and Savior. And in your name we do pray. Amen.
We thank you that in this chaotic world that we're living in right now, Lord, that we don't have to fear. Lord, we know that you are in control. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that, that we would see that you are the only way that we can have peace in the midst of uh, everything that's going on in us, Lord. All the storms, all the, the protests, all the, the anarchy, the, the COVID. Lord, when our world seems to be going out of control, uh, it it's never uh, sneaks up on you, Lord. 
It didn't just occur to you. We know that, that you've known about this. Lord, we, we trust you. And I pray you'd help us to, to just uh, call on your name and know that you promise that if anyone calls upon your name, you will hear us. Lord, if we'll confess our sins and, and humble ourselves, that you'll forgive us of our sins and you'll be our Lord and our Savior. And then, and only then, can we know true peace, Lord. We love you. We ask it all in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Was a time that I swore I would never go back. I was blind to the truth, didn't know what I had. I was running, I was searching, but every place I turned for healing left me more broken than the last. Take me back to the place that feels like home. To the people I can depend on To the faith that's in my bones Take me back To a preacher and a verse Where they've seen me at my worst To the love I had at first I want to go to church I want to go to church Tried to walk on my own, but I wound up lost. Now I'm making my way to the foot of the cross. It's not a trophy for the winner. It's a shelter for the sinner. And it's right where I belong. Take me back to a place that feels like home. The people I can depend on for the faith that's in my bones. Take me back to a preacher and a verse where they see me at my worst. To the love I had at first, I wanna go to church. No, oh, I wanna go to church.
Amen. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Daniel. You know, I do think that that is the sentiment today of uh, our body of Christ. Our folks are so ready to go back to church, to go back to that day where we could be together in one body, one faith, and one unity, and just worship our Lord and Savior. There's another reason that we asked uh, for them to do that for us this week by way of special because of the message this morning as I want to think with you today along this thought a matter of truth and in that song that Daniel was singing it talks about going back to church and hearing that word that's preached from that preacher that word that is thus saith the Lord you know we're living in a day and in an age in which there's a lot of discussion about truth the question is, well, what is truth? Does truth really matter? I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 23, and we're going to look, I, I mean, Proverbs 23. I knew I was going to do that. Proverbs 23 and verse 23. And I want you to listen to what Solomon says to his son, uh, Rehoboam. Now, remember, Solomon was David's son, and of course, David being that that godly king after uh, God's own heart. He was uh, truly a man that loved God and had a fellowship with God, had a real oneness with God. And then Solomon came along, and we know the story of Solomon, how he prayed uh, to God and asked God for a unique gift. He said, Lord, if you want to give me anything, give me wisdom. And the Bible tells us that Solomon truly was the wisest man who has ever lived. Now, of course, Jesus, uh, being God and man, uh, would surpass that. But uh, those born of women who are only men, uh, Solomon the wisest of all. And his kingdom flourished. He was the, what history tells us, the richest king that had ever uh, existed here on earth. His wealth is just uh, really staggering uh, to know how prosperous he was. And he's, he's passing along now the heritage of faith to his son and when you get into proverbs particularly around the 23rd chapter you you get into a section that's it's really solomon speaking to his son and he's giving him some advice and there's a lot of these little nuggets and in verse 23 of proverbs 23 here's what he says to his son buy truth and do not sell it by wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And when he talks about buy, he's talking about get a hold of it, gain it, put it in your life, find out where it is that you can uh, obtain it. In of the things that he mentions, truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding, in that one verse, one of them he says, if you get it, don't let go of it. He's really saying it's priceless. Uh, you can't sell it. You dare not sell it. And the thing that he says is truth. That's why I want us to think about this question. Does truth matter? A matter of the truth. I want to ask you another question this morning. And I uh, want you to think about it. Is truth open to interpretation? Is it open to interpretation? Let me give you another question. Is truth absolute? Now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. 
Is truth open to interpretation? For example, we say 2 plus 2 equals 4. Is it open to interpretation? Can it mean something else? Can it add up to something else? Is truth absolute? In other words, 2 plus 2 always equals 4 and nothing else. Now, if you answered both of those questions, you are going to be in one category of people. But if you answered, well, no to those two questions, then you are in a separate category. You see, we live today in a world that's made up of really two types of individuals, and you're in one or the other, whether you perhaps know it or not. You are in what is called the truth generation or the truth category, or you are in what we will call this morning the post-truth group. And we're going to talk about that this morning as we think about does truth matter. Now, let me say to you that it does matter, and I believe that it matters. And let me give you one reason I think that it matters, and we can get this from the Scripture because you know, there's only so much that God could put into the Bible. I mean, think about it. I mean, the Bible says itself, John says, you know, if everything that Jesus said, done, uh, taught, uh, uh, did while he was on earth was, was written down, that, well, the books of this world couldn't contain them all. I mean, so we have this book, this holy word of God that is, as we're going to talk about today, the, the word of truth. And there's only so much in it that God could give to us to be the precepts for our living. And one of the most specific and specifically important times of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was when he was going to the cross. In particularly when he was on trial for what he had been accused of, of being. And that was a blaspheming God saying that he was God. And the, the truth is that he was God. He is God. Uh, and so the, uh, the charges were, well, they were true, but he was not guilty because he was who he claimed to be. But standing before, before Pilate in John 18, verses 37 and 38, Pilate says to him, are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And for this purpose, Jesus says, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to, now listen to this, the truth. I've come to deliver truth, Jesus says. So this is a big thing that, that God is getting across to us that this subject of truth is so important for mankind that he sent his only son into the world that we could get truth. Everyone, Jesus says, who is of the truth, those who are followers of him, listens to his voice for that truth. And then Pilate asked a question, what is truth? And the gospel just leaves it hanging out there. Um, in other words, it's a, it's, it's a question that we search out the answer to in faith. And as you go through the Bible, and as you look to Jesus, you discover what real truth is. Now, I ask about that question, is truth absolute? You know, does 2 plus 2 always equal 4? Things that are truly true, are they always absolutely true? 
We live in a world today where for many people, truth is abstract, not absolute. In other words, truth is defined by situational ethics, they say, or circumstantial morals. Today, the standard for truth is what, well, what is our own personal opinion? What is the governing philosophy of man or the personal preference of mankind? The Oxford uh, Dictionary <clears throat> selected in 2016 this word that we're going to spend some time talking about today, the word post-truth. It was the 2016 word of the year. Each year they choose out a word that they say captures the culture of the people. And uh, they said in 2016 that this really was the preoccupation and thought on the culture of our world post-truth. Well, what does that exactly mean? And you know, we, we, we're living in a world today where there's a lot said about truth. We, we hear a lot talked about uh, as far as something being fake news. It doesn't matter whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, there are claims to either side that uh, there are posts out there that are untrue sources of news. Alternative facts, they are called. And, and today you might follow uh, uh, those who try to keep a, a account of what's actually true or factual. And uh, I think there's a website out there that gives Pinocchio noses out to people who don't really tell the truth. It's always rather interesting to see uh, either what political leader or uh, maybe a famous Hollywood person who has gotten some Hollywood uh, or got some uh, Pinocchio noses because they were talking about something or saying something that, well, the facts didn't back up. Now, the idea of post-truth has really been around for a while, really uh, in the modern sense since 1992. So what is post-truth thinking? Well, here is what I want you to get. It defines reality by feelings more than facts. In other words, people are not interpreting what they're seeing or hearing or thinking on the facts that are given, but rather on the feelings towards what they are experiencing. John Dickerson in his book, Hope for a Nation, defines it this way. Listen to what he says. Pull-truth ideology is a view of the world in which reality and morality are defined by a person's emotions, feelings, local culture, subjective personal criteria, rather than by objective facts and fixed standards, such as laws or immutable principles. For example, throw out the Ten Commandments. Throw out the laws of man. That's not truth. It's how you feel about those things. It's how you feel towards those things. In other words, post-truth thinkers are really defending the idea that it's okay to have a floating set of moral imperatives in which culture has been conditioned to accept. So, for example, uh, maybe your mom and dad grew up thinking this thing was a right thing or a wrong thing, but that today 
because of the way culture has shifted or changed, culture can look at that and you can look at that differently than your mom and dad as being either a right thing or wrong thing because, well, the times have changed. How many times have you heard your children or perhaps your grandchildren or your neighbor's children, your neighbor's grandchildren say, well, times are different. It wasn't what it was way back when. Now, do some things change? Do things in cultures change? Absolutely. And let me say that there are things that have been in culture at one time that were looked upon as okay, that the truth is they were never okay. And today we don't look upon those things as being okay, and we say instead they are wrong. But now, I want you to hear me out, truth has not changed. For example, slavery. There was a time in our nation, there was a time in the world where slavery was an accepted institution. It was an accepted thing in which the economy of this world worked upon and ran upon it. Now today, of course, we know that slavery is immoral. It's wrong, unethical, uh, not of God. And the truth is, it's never been okay with God. God has never wanted for one man to rule over another man in a way that another man would be the property of that man or, or that individual. And so that truth is seen differently today in culture, but that truth has not changed. But the attitudes towards it has changed. But now there are some things in which years ago were looked upon one way, and today they're looked upon another, th another way, and truth was true years ago, and truth is still true today, and what has changed is not truth, but the way we feel towards that thing. You know, it's a real dangerous thing today uh, when you begin to talk about post-truth and truth. In particular, it's a real dangerous thing to talk against post-truth believers, because you're going to run into the, what they call the, the council uh, mob, the mob <clears throat> of the council, uh, the council culture. In other words, if you don't say what we want you to say, if you don't put it the way we believe you ought to put it, if you don't think the way we think you ought to think, then, well, we're going to cancel you. We're going to crush you. We'll socially behead you. And today, they do that. Uh, we all the time will hear about someone that said something that didn't set well with particular individuals within a culture, and then the mob rushes in, and we've seen folks lose, lose their job, lose their, their businesses, lose their, uh, their uh, privacy, uh, and, and be attacked socially uh, and even physically because they said something that one group did not like. I will say that uh, this may be the most dangerous message that I've ever preached personally because uh, it is attacking the way the world wants to think today and uh, I understand the risk by which I am addressing this issue. Abdu Murray puts it in his book, Saving Truth. He says this, we've undergone a shift from what he calls soft post-truth advancement to a hard post-truth enforcement and demand. He says post-truth thinking has graduated now from the universities and hit the main streets of America. 
And then he goes on to say in his book, it's really the fault of the church in part. He says this has happened because the church has failed really on two seemingly contrary ways. Here's what the church has failed to do. On one hand, he says, Christians have compromised the clarity of the Scripture for, for sake of acceptance and for avoidance of conflict. The church, the pulpits have been, have been neglecting the Word of God, not preaching the narrowness of God's Word, the, 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 the straightness of God's truth. You remember what Jesus said? He said, you know, it's like going through the, the eye of a needle. It, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's not an easy thing for someone to swallow their pride, submit themselves uh, unto God, and humble themselves before Him, and accept the truth of His Word. And, and the church hasn't been very steadfast in the clarity of Scripture. Uh, you know, we, we talk about being seeker-friendly, and, and we want to be friendly folk, and we want to be open to people to come and to be a part of worship and all of those kinds of things. But folks, as children of God, as people of God, we hold to a certain standard. We hold to a certain truth and we cannot waver. And, and it may cost us getting people to come into the family of God. It may cost people fellowshipping with us. But we must hold to what is true. Now on the other hand, he says, there's also been by Christians and churches the practice of vilifying those with whom they disagree. In other words, they don't necessarily look at the sin. They don't necessarily look at the untruth, but they look at the people and, and then they just basically turn hate upon them. And they vilify them as evil and horrible people. Now folks, we live in a lost world and we can't be shocked when the lost world acts in a lost way and lives in a way contrary to the Word of God. And, and yes, we can hate sin, but we are always to love the sinner. And he said these two things that the church most typically does, either it's too soft on sin or it's too hard on sin, uh, on sinners, it, he says, begins to harmonize in this grisly dirge of succumbing to post-truth expression. And it gives it soil, it gives it water, it gives it sunlight to grow. In other words, because the extremity of the church, we've given a place where people can just dismiss truth and supplement how they feel rather than the facts of God's Word towards their living. Barner Research in 2016 said they found that 57% of Americans believe this, knowing what is right and knowing what is wrong is a matter of personal experience. Did you hear that? Not what God says, not what the laws in the books say, but how you feel about it. Right or wrong is how you feel about it. Today, 70% of Americans still identify as Christians. You know, the question is, are we still a Christian nation? Are we still a nation under God? And believe it or not, 70% of Americans still identify themselves as Christians. But the research also points out and concludes that 
seven to no better than 20% of those who claim to be Christian are measurably active in the Christian faith in any way. Now, here's the big takeaway. Here's what I want you to take with you this morning. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Nothing in all of human life matters as much as ideas, and nothing matters in ideas as much as truth. Let me say that again. Nothing in all of human life matters as much as ideas, and nothing matters in ideas as much as truth. Satan knew this. Satan knows this. Matter of fact, we, the first time we see Satan, when he appears upon earth here in the, uh, uh, in the Bible, he's in the Garden of Eden, and he's tempting Eve, and he's going to tempt Adam. And what's he doing? He is, he is giving a lie. He is twisting the truth. He's taking the idea that God had given Adam and Eve, and he's trying to take truth out of it. You remember what God had said? You can do anything pretty much you want, have anything you want, except from this tree of knowledge of uh, 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 good and life. This tree of good and evil. Don't eat of it. That's the one thing you can't do. There was, you know, today we talk about, man, there's so many laws. You don't know what laws are good laws or bad laws. Could you imagine living in a day in which there was just one law? Don't eat of that tree. That's how simple it was. And, and, and Satan came along and he said, first of all, did God really say that to you guys? And he got Eve questioning whether God had even really said it. And, and if he said it, did he say it the way you heard it? Did he say it the way you thought he meant it? Or did he really mean something else? And so he twists up the truth. He takes truth out of the idea that God had given to them, the understanding that he had given and before you know it, what all hell had broken loose on earth. Adam and Eve had lost the garden. They had suffered the penalty of sin. They would die. They would suffer in life. And, and since then, what? Mankind has lived in the broken world of sin. Listen to what Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. He says, our weapons... For the, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy the strongholds. You know what strongholds are? Those are the ideas. Those are the, the, the ideas and the thoughts and, and, and the wants of Satan. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know what he's saying there? Hold on to truth. Grab hold of truth. That is the weapon of our warfare. Let me say to you young people out there particularly, and, and, and this is true for everyone, but particularly our young people, uh, I know that you believe that it, it's always great to fit in with the cool, the hip, and the vogue, those that are in vogue today. But I want to tell you, while truth may seem not to be as cool as it used to be, or hip as it used to be, or in vogue as it used to be, truth matters. You know, in some ways, Christianity is really in its most humble and weakest form. Christianity isn't in vogue today. 
as it once was. Christianity is presently the, the group of folks that are following that mocked and scorned Nazarene who stumbled under the weight of his cross on the path to Golgotha. Someone said it about Christianity, said Christianity is in its present form like Aslan, the Lion of Narnia, shaved, sworn, and mocked, and scorned. You remember that scene in the book? That's the way the world views Christ. And when you read the Bible, you find that Jesus is that Lamb, that Lamb of God. But dear friend, I want to remind you that Jesus said that He is coming again. And one day He's coming and He won't be that lamb. He will be the lion. And He won't be a lion that's been shaved and shorn. He won't be that lion that's mocked and scorned in and, and, and that book of Narnia. He will be the lion of glory and regal omnipotent power. And on that day when He comes, truth will matter. Our battle is now. Our fight is now. Our fight is now for our children, for our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. So let me quickly give you three things that I want you to see. The three battlefields of truth today. The introduction is much bigger than the point, so don't, don't be afraid. But three areas where you and I need to be aware that we are fighting. Number one, our battle is for facts versus feelings. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. The battle is facts versus feelings. How much do we prize the truth? Let me give you three things about the truth that we prize that you need to know. First of all, truth is indispensable. Solomon says you buy it, you get it, you obtain it. Don't let go of it. Why did God write the Bible? Why did he give us the Bible? So you and I can know what truth is. The Bible is called truth itself. Why did Jesus send the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of truth. So you and I could grasp the truth, understand the truth. Why did Jesus come? Well, he said to Pilate, I've come to give truth. I'm a king, I am the king of kings, but I have come that this world might know truth. He also says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What's the mission of the church? Well, the Bible says that the church in 1 Timothy 3, 15 is the pillar and the ground of truth. You see, truth is indispensable. And look, there's no greater joy for a parent than when their child or their grandchild gets hold of a truth. I'll give you an illustration. And I tell my kids this, I have told this to them all the time, but you know, as they get older, I see it clicking in. I used to tell them this, uh, and my dad told me this, and I'm sure his dad told him this. He's, he used to tell me as a kid, he'd, he'd say, son, you take care of your things and your things will take care of you. Now, the reason my dad told me that it was because I didn't like to put things away. I didn't take care of the things that I had. Since I wasn't buying my things as a kid, and I didn't have the money invested in it that he did, that he gave and provided to our family, those things didn't necessarily hold the same value. But as I've gotten older, and well, now it's my money that's paying for things, things all of a sudden become more important. 
And I realized, well, you know what? It's important that when you get a screwdriver out, you put your screwdriver back up. That way, the next time you need a screwdriver, you know where it's at and you know that you've got it. You're not wandering around, where did, it, where did it go? How did I lose it? You try to pass that message on to your kids. And then one day you see your kids take hold of that truth and you think, finally. Dear friend, God feels the same way about us when we get his truth. When we go, oh God, I see that, it makes sense. You're right. Truth is indispensable in life. Truth is absolute. It, it, it is not abstract. That's the big argument. Is it abstract or absolute? Listen, truth in math mathematics is absolute. Truth in medicine is absolute. Truth in mechanics, absolute. There are certain truths in life that we don't really question. Crawl up on top of a big building, jump off, see how long the law of gravity goes to work. See if you can argue it out of existence. You know, you can sow the sins of dismissing truth, but dear friend, you will reap the harvest. The wages of sin is death. And I think one of the things that's happened in our nation is that we have sown the seeds of, of dismissing truth, saying truth doesn't matter. And our nation is in some ways dying socially, economically, religiously, politically, and in other ways because, well, we've taken one of the the great foundations of life itself and just kicked it to the curb. Now, I know you're saying, well, preacher, that's awfully narrow-minded. And uh, I've been accused of being narrow-minded, and, and, and maybe you've been told your preacher's narrow-minded. Don't you worry, that doesn't hurt my feelings, not one bit at all. But you know, there are certain things in life, there are certain people in, in life we want to be narrow-minded, don't we? I mean, what about your banker? You want every penny in your account to be yours, right? You don't want him just estimating, well, I thought you had $100, but we just kind of rounded it to around 80 I guarantee you, you want your banker to be narrow-minded. You want every penny that's yours to be there. You want your pilot to be narrow-minded. I mean, you get on an airplane and you take off, and your pilot comes on and says, well, we think we can get there. No, I want a pilot that says, I know we can get there. I've got the course laid out. I've got the route laid out. I want my pilot narrow-minded. I want my pharmacist narrow-minded. And he's in the audience today. I want you narrow-minded, Derek. You know, if the doctor's giving me blood pressure medicine, I want blood pressure medicine. You know, I don't want sleepy medicine. I want blood pressure medicine. I'm getting sleepy medicine. I want sleepy medicine. You know. I don't want medicine that I don't need. Why then should we not demand that the most important thing in all the earth be right? And what is that? Being right with God. That's the truth that's absolute. Our postmodern society says truth is, is whatever you want it to be. Postmodernists say this, forget truth. What's true for you may not be true for me, and you have your truth, and I'll have my truth, and we'll just become autonomous and create our own truth. That's a straight out of the humanist manifesto, that's straight out of 
humanism. It's more than a philosophy. It's an organization. It is its own religion. And did you hear that word autonomous? Folks, you don't think that's in play today. I had put this sermon together. I've been working on this weeks before what took place in Seattle. They've got six areas of Seattle, and they call themselves the autonomous group. In other words, they can do whatever they want to do because they're their own set of folks. And if you don't know this, that hits a lot closer to home than you think, because I was reading where our governor spoke last uh, night or yesterday uh, to, to a group that thought they were going to do this in Nashville, and he said, oh, no, you're not. You're not going to cordon off and be your own little group. But we are living in a world today where people think, well, I can do what I want to do because that's what I want to do. Truth is absolute. Moral values are not derived just from some source of human experience. Ethics isn't autonomous and situational. In other words, you don't get to make up the rules as you play the game. There's an old story told of uh, of, uh, Plato, when he was writing uh, Plato's Republic, he wrote about some sailors who's lost their compass, so they decided to put a light on the bow and steer by that. That's pretty much what we've decided to do as a society. I got news for you. Morals and values matter. And what is true is true. You send your children off to school, and unfortunately, they come back, and now they question everything. Oh, there's no moral absolute. That was just a silly, dumb, old country preacher that was preaching to me as a young child. Dismiss him. That Sunday school teacher that told me about God's love and God's word and God's truth, that's just, that's a a myth. Just dismiss it. Oh, my parents, they're old fogies stuck in the past. They don't know anything. And unfortunately, our children are being brainwashed to think that, well, Truth is kind of this spongy thing that we make up as we go along through life. Truth is absolute. Truth is indispensable. Truth is attainable. Solomon says we can get it. We can have it. We can hold it. It's not elusive. It's not some great mystery. There are some things in life we may never understand. I hope that we get a cure for COVID, but we may not. We may not ever have a vaccine. We may not really ever have a cure for it. But what we do know is truth. You say, well, what is truth? Well, I'm just going to refer to these scriptures. I'll let you look them up uh, on your own. My notes will be out there. You can get them from that. But the Bible, God is called truth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Jesus is called truth. Revelation 19, verse 11. We mentioned John 14 and verse 6. The Holy Spirit is called truth. John 16, verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. The Bible is called truth. John 17, verse 17. Ephesians 1, 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And the church is called truth. 1 Timothy 3, 15. In other words, all these things that are of God is where we find real truth. The battle is between facts or feelings. And where do you find the facts of life? In God. The battle is a place of virtue or value. That's the second battleground. The Bible tells us about the folks that live in the the day of the judges. Judges 17 verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Dear friend, that right there is a description of America. We are a nation today that does not live by virtue. 
but my values. We have a generation that talks a lot about values today. And for the next several months, I guarantee you, you're going to hear a lot about values, 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 values. Every presidential election, that's a major talk topic. What are values? Can I tell you something, dear friend? Everybody's got values. We hear about gangs like MS-13, some of the bloodiest, most violent people that, that are on the face of this earth. But guess what? They've got values. It's not values we need, it's virtue. And there's a big difference. Values come from individuals who just decide what they want to believe. But virtues come from God. I'll give you an illustration of how this played out in our own nation. Not too long ago, there was a vote taken in the Senate of the United States. The vote was whether or not do we protect infants born alive during abortion. And it was defeated. Now, folks, that was a value vote. That was not a virtuous vote. It was a value vote. Political leaders sat there and decided based upon who might vote for them and what was in their best interest in their own party, what they would decide about a little baby that was a living, breathing little child as to whether or not it would live or not live. We need the virtues of God. Listen how Peter explains his expectation upon his followers in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And though the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted us his precious and very great promise so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason, make every effort, Peter says, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. But did you hear him? Virtue. That word means with strength. It's a word that means with moral excellence. For the Greeks, it was a word that meant fulfill the purpose to which you were born, to the purpose for which you were made. I want to ask you this question. Are you getting stronger in the Lord every day? Are you a stronger Christian today than you were yesterday and the day before and the day before? We ought to be growing in our virtue. And one of the reasons I long for us to get back together again as a church is because we help each other grow stronger in our virtue when we are together. There's the battle of facts versus feelings. There's the battle of virtue versus value. And one last place where we battle, it is the battle of truth versus thought. By truth, don't sell it, he said. Listen, we must purchase truth, we must prize truth, and we must preserve truth. One of the things that we must do is become a bulldog that gets that bulldog grip on truth. And we never, 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 never let go. There's nothing so valuable 
as truth. Let me give you some scriptures. Titus 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Philippians 1, 2, and 7, we're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Jude 3, contend for the faith. We are to be at battle. We are to be at war. We are to be steadfast with the truth. What is the battle? Four things. We battle those who would deny truth. Those that say that the word of God is to be rejected. Those who say that the word of God is some kind of fictitious writing or false book. We're to, def- we're, listen folks, we're to stand in defense of the truth. We are to stand and make that argument, oh no. It is the only sure and truthful thing that this world has. Those who would distort the truth. Those that would come in like Satan in a serpent sort of way and take that which is true and twist it all up into a lie. Those that would dilute the truth. Oh, there's a lot of churches and a lot of pulpits today that, dear friend, have diluted the Word of God. I think of one man in particular. He preaches a lot of happy sermons and I know there are a lot of those that, that, that sit in this congregation and listen to this pastor preach that listen to him. And I've heard you tell me, oh, what a good sermon or a good funny guy he is or a good joke he tells. Friend, he is a messenger out of hell. He dilutes the truth. He does not say that you must be saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. Why would you listen to anyone who will not preach Christ and his blood and Calvary. If you find someone watering down the gospel word of of God, then turn them off. Forsake them. Reject them. And there are those that will out and out defile the truth of God. We must stand and we must fight by truth and sell it not. Let me give you a closing truth. When the child of God looks into the word of God, there the child of God will see the son of God. And when that child of God sees the son of God, he or she will be changed by the spirit of God. Changed by the spirit of God into the image of God. To live to the glory of God. Having been found In the truth of God. Dear friend, that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing less. Do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, then friend, you don't know truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the greatest truth you can know. Does truth matter? Absolutely. And one day, the Bible says, you have an appointment. I got a card in the mail the other day. Chris, you got a dental appointment on this day at this time. 
I don't know anybody that says, oh, man, I get to go to the dentist. Whoopee. And, folks, this is coming from a guy who's lived 50-something years and never had a cavity. They've never had to drill in my mouth. They've never had to pull a tooth. I just go in and typically get a little cleaning. I don't look forward to going to the dentist. It's not pleasant. I couldn't imagine having to go to the dentist and I've got a mouthful of junk. Cavities. Bad roots. And knowing that there's a whole lot that's going to have to be done. I'm going to tell you something else. I couldn't imagine one day having to stand before Jesus and give him an account of my life that doesn't measure up to his sacrifice and his gift of eternal life to me. There's a truth, friend. And that's one day you and I are going to stand before God. Either you stand for him now or you're going to struggle standing before him later. Heavenly Father, we pray today that we understand how much truth matters. We pray for revival in our land, in America. And Lord, we need a revival of truth. Revival of your holy word. Revival, God, that convicts us of our sin. Convicts us of our lostness. That points us to the narrow way that Jesus, you are the only way to heaven. I don't need your Bible, God, to tell me I'm a sinner. Inside of me there is something called a conscience that tells me when I've blown it, when I've messed up. But Lord, when I read your word, I find out that that wrong feeling is more than just a wrong feeling. It's a sin that separates me from your holiness. And that's an awful truth. But there's a loving truth that means that Jesus, you died for that sin. And if I will come to you in faith, humble myself before you, make confession to give you my life and ask you to be my Lord, to save me from my sins, then Jesus, you, you promised, and your word is always true, absolutely true, you promised to save me, secure me for all eternity. Lord, maybe there's someone today that needs to pray that sinner's prayer. And Lord, they are doing that. Our prayers, they'll contact us, let us know. I prayed that prayer today and asked Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, maybe there's a Christian today that says, I'm not living like I ought to live. And I'm certainly not ready to stand before you, God, because I've not been living steadfast in your truth. And in their heart this morning, they recommit their life to you, Jesus. Whatever your decision, whatever your will would be, God, let it be done today. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.